SQL Down Under is a podcast for professionals working in the SQL Server community. SQL Server is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions expressed during the podcast are individual opinions and may not reflect the opinions of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing Show 81 with guest Lewis Davidson. Our guest today is Lewis Davidson. Lewis is a well-known data architect and long-term data platform MVP and is a prolific author, I consider. But anyway, so welcome, Lewis. Hello. How have you been? Uh, Very well, considering (laughs) the circumstances of the world. Yeah. Well, I think the reason I got you to come on today and uh, it prompted me is that uh, you've recently released what everybody considers to be uh, uh, an amazing book, uh, if nothing, through the sheer weight of it uh, on professional relational database design. It is quite hefty. And uh, uh, what did you say? It was, it's 1,100 pages or something? Or? 1,160-ish. That's <laughs> <laughs> an amazing size. And so now this is also the sixth edition of the book, is it? Yes. Um, in fact, it's actually seven. We Rock's book, I, I can't believe I used that word out loud. Yeah. Uh, when they went under, like in 19, what is it, like 2004, 2005, something yeah, like that. Yeah, a while back. I must admit, I used to quite like a lot of the Rock's titles. So uh... the books with the, co- with the pictures on the cover. Yeah. Which yeah, is really yeah. delightful. You know, mm. I see myself 20 years ago on my shelf occasionally. Mm. I'm like, oh my goodness, that picture. But A-Press um, has had a consistent release of these types of books. So. A-Press bought all of their the books they didn't they didn't sell to somebody else. Mm-hmm. We were all in a bunch. And I did another version of it. And then this is my sixth time I've, I've changed the book for, um, for A-Press. And it's funny, if I look back at the first book, it, was, it, was, it wasn't terrible, but it was, there was a lot more naivety in there. When I, the, first, um, the first copy of this book... I had just been, they charged us a million dollars to do some thing. Mm-hmm. Million dollars is an exaggeration, but it's And not this that was charged to the company you were working for. Yes. Yeah. And okay. I ended up with this diagram, which was really terrible. And I put this, they kind of felt it in the book. And back in the day, we used to have 10, I had 10 technical editors. And several mm. of them were consultants, possibly, apparently not as evil as the people I'd worked with. Yeah. And so I took a beating and I learned so much from that. And then my next edition, you know, I, I gained some knowledge. I get some changes and I had a great editor then called T- Tony Davis. He works mm-hmm. for I know Red Tony. Now. Yes, indeed. And he just brutalized the book hmm. and like tore it down and, and rebuilt it. And it, it became a much, much better book. And I've tried to re- redo it completely occasionally myself. And I'm like, I can't make it any better. Even now the organization is good. I have way too many chapters in a mm. thousand pages, I think I only have 13 chapters. So it's, yeah, it's it, in the smaller chunks, but there's sub, there's plenty of subsections. I, th- I think the, people um, also underestimate the time involved in creating something like that as well. I did the first time. Mm. The, uh, the first time I, I started, it took me about a year and I probably worked 20, 30, 40, 50 hours a week sometimes. Yeah. Um, I actually bought my first smartphone to do editing on and I would go to my daughter's basketball game or my daughter's thing or whatever she's mm-hmm. doing. And I would sit there and I would write on this Palm Pilot. It was, it was one of those green oh, no. glowy things. <laughs> and I would write uh, lots of stuff on there while I was just sitting around waiting. I would save it and then come back. I'd download it and, and edit it back in. I still do that today. That's, that's actually kind of fun. Now it's, the tools are a lot better. You know, mm-hmm. I have one note and I'll, I'll write on one note and get a whole bunch of ideas and then come back and sit down at my desk when I can, yeah. find, when I can. Yeah, find the but time you don't want to be that. doing that at the basketball game anyway. <laughs> it's yeah. And, and well, I, I actually gained a lot of my weight that year because, yeah. you know, I didn't cook. I didn't, I didn't exercise. I didn't do anything like that. We just basically just 
I existed writing. Mm. Um, and we made, the money back then was pretty good. Today it's not still a lot of work. I mean, I, I took about seven months, seven or eight months doing this and I probably worked 20 plus hours a week on it. Yep. You know, a couple hours a day, three or four hours a, a weekend day. And then you've got to edit it and you have a tech editor who goes in and, and looks at it and says, Hey, this is terrible. Hmm. This isn't true. And then you find things that aren't true yourself. There's a few things I discovered even uh, I had to like adjust things I, I learned even after I'd finished the text of this book and they sent it back to me and I had to you know, edit some things down to make it more mm. right. Even though I know the next time I put the book out, there's things I have to change to get even more right. Because I'm not a, um, I'm not a professor. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not a, I don't have a doctorate. I don't have a master's. I'm, I, and when I look at, in fact, going back to the reason why I wrote the book was I could not, I had a textbook and I, I had a class in database design I got a C mm-hmm. in it. I, I didn't get a whole lot of C's in, in computer science. I mean, I mostly yeah. B's. And, um, but I, I didn't understand things like the relational algebra and mm. stuff like that. And I still don't, I still have kind of a, a block, my mental block on, on the kind of algebra and the equations they put in things. But the whole concepts of, of how you design a database just seemed rather simple, but, and not taught. And I asked, an editor, hey, is there any books on database? Having uh, done some work in universities and things as well myself, a, a big part of the problem there too is that like when I worked at a university, there's, there were probably three groups of people who were teaching. There were people who were still studying themselves, right? And so a university is not a bad place to work when you're, when you're studying. Uh and some of those were people who were working in industry at the time. And they, they were, I've, I think overall, they, they brought a freshness to what was going on. Um, but you also had, you know, people who were there to retire sort of thing. Um, <laughs> and, and so it's really quite hit and miss as, as to what you would strike at most universities. And a big part of the issue is that um, the people there are just simply not doing this sort of work on a daily basis. And ironically, it's the same problem with the SQL Server team itself, right? If you look at a, a person who many of the people who work in the team have never written real commercial databases or anything in their life, right? Um, th- their background will be in development and they'll be good C Sharp or, or C++ developers and so on. But that doesn't put them in a position of someone who builds databases that they have to live with, right? Um, and so it, whenever they're saying, you know, they want to get out and talk to real people and so on, th- that's very true. You know? I'm just glad you said it, not me. <laughs> because I was thinking it. Because, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of really great, pe- great SQL relational developers that work mm. with SQL Server. But, yeah, there's a lot of them who are just really great programmers and really great mathematicians. And, yes. And, and it's... Some of them are incredible. I mean, we know, we know a few of them that are incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to say their names. Connor Cunningham yeah, is incredible. Yeah. There's, a, there's a bunch we know. That, <laughs> yes, Pedro, yes, yes, yes. Bob, all those guys. They're incredible. In fact, and a and couple of Pedros, really. Yeah, so, but yeah. No, no, there's, there's a whole bunch of people, yeah, many whom we uh, uh, very affectionately cling to, you know, that are just sort of great people in that. But it, it's, um, it is just a challenge. You've you got to think about, you know what the background is of the of the people who are doing that, and because it's it's a different role, it's a different thing that they're doing, um, and so you've got to look at where does where does the learning from the school of hard knocks come from? And the other big one is um, even when you have people who are doing consulting all the time, um, I, I I prefer consultants who come in and out and work with someone over a long period of time not consultants who arrive, do a bit of work and disappear again, right? And mostly because in many cases, the latter tend to create problems and they never realize that they're creating problems because they're never there long enough to see the outcome. I'm assuming we can tell our voices apart from one another's. Yeah. Because, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I agree with you completely. I mean, it's hard too because if you're really good at one thing, you know, the people who come in and they're doing consulting, 
they can come in, they can patch a problem and move on. And then there's the kind who have to, who do, who build a lot of software and they never feel the pain of it. Like hmm. I've worked at the same place for 23 years now. And yeah, I see code I wrote <laughs> 20 years ago. Of course. Yeah, sometimes scary, still in it? use. And I'm like, <laughs> what is this? Who wrote? Oh man, I wrote that. Mm. Why did I write that? <laughs> and sometimes, you know, it's after you've written books on things, you, you get in your head, you should have been doing better than this. Yeah. And of course, nobody respects you when you, nobody respects you with the company you work at. Right. It's, mm. It just doesn't happen. You're just another person. Who's just another person. Yeah. That's why I keep the, my, my books on a, on a shelf behind my um, camp, my webcam. So if I'm ever in a meeting, mm. I can just point back. I wrote those. I'm better than you. <laughs> so Which is not quite, at all. I, quite funny. My wife, uh, when uh, she's sort of been out doing consulting and things. And again, yeah, she had like a little, or people set of books and things. She's talking, she's, yes, I, I know him. I know her. I know him. I know it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's quite funny when you see that. But listen, the thing I, I'd like to just close off on too is that People keep, uh, I get lots of questions all the time where people are saying to me, can you recommend various technical books on SQL Server and stuff? And look, there are some, uh, and in fact, yours is obviously one of them. Um, but the, one of the things I try and explain to people now is it's getting to the point where for many people, it's just not worth, well, it depends on how you define value, right? Um, but it, it's not often worth their while to, to do the work that's required to do it um, simply because if you look at earnings-wise, obviously they'd be better flipping burgers at a McDonald's than they would writing a book. Um, and so it's got to be all the other things you get out of it. Now, there are lots of those. I mean, uh, I think things about writing, there's obviously uh, you got the, you know, just even the, the period to have a, a period of clarity where you look at a topic at a great degree and try and make sense of it so you can explain it to someone else is cool. And obviously there's a still a prestige thing associated with the books as well. And so what is it for you? Cause it, I'm sure it's not income. Well, first I want to go back and say, I didn't mean I was better than others because I had written books. That is absolutely not the case. It, mm -hmm. It's more what you said. It's more like concentrated. You force yourself to write something about a topic and, and keep up with it. It's, uh, it's addicting as well hmm. uh, because you don't want, because you, well, let's put it this way. If I stop writing this, they'll get someone else to do it. And yep. someone else will put their name on my book because it's kind of, it's kind of half yours, half not yours. And yes, I've, I've actually written parts of books and then didn't write the next edition and find my, you know, my writing under somebody else's name is kind of, yep. it's kind of disconcerting. Oh, it is. I've, I've had courses I've built. Uh, for large organization. And, and of course, if you don't do the next one, you look at the course and 90% of it is what you wrote. And yet it's, yeah, somebody else's course. <laughs> so you, you think, oh my goodness. Yeah. But I mean, that, that's reality where you don't own it. So, um, so I suppose, look, I, I think in terms of the return that occurs, um, one of the problems I know when we had the MVP deep dives uh, series of books, the, one of the problems there is that even almost before you release it, there's there's so many, there were pirated versions out before we even released the book, right? Now, now in the case of that, where we had, you look at the people we were writing the books for, were people like Operation Smile and War Child and, you know, people like that. The, the question yes. you know, goes through your mind is, who who is it exactly rips these sort of people off, right? Like, like I mean... <laughs> might be one thing where they think it's some commercial author or something, but like Operation Smile, you know, fixes cleft palates in kids in third world countries. Like, like who, who takes it into their mind that it's okay to rip those people off when that's where the, where the returns are going to? I absolutely have no idea. <laughs> I mean, I, so terrible. I mean, I, it, I, yeah, <laughs> no words for that. Mm. Not, not none whatsoever, but I can't even understand who people think, you know, I'm a developer and I'm, a, I'm making my money. I'll go steal a book. And, yeah. you know, authors, I, we do make money on books. I mean, hmm. and if we don't have books to write, you know, if we, if, if we don't have people buying them and just stealing them, you know, they're, they're not going to continue to be made. No. And I mean, there's a lot to say books are, 
the value of even writing a book or, the, or getting a book is, is declining over time, hmm. partially because the internet, you know, there's so many good things on the internet. Yep. A lot of techniques, a lot of, of go out, I can do a certain thing. But what I, what I like about books is if you make them at least future-proof enough, you can get a, a, a distinct, a, a, a concise, <laughs> I'm calling my thousand page book a concise, anything is hilarious, <laughs> but you can get a, a walkthrough of how to do something. Yeah, you get a, where, a complete concept. You get something thought through. This is the thing you get from a book. The, the other thing that's interesting too is that uh, like it's hard to put yourself if you know a topic really, really well in the, in the position of someone who doesn't know the topic. And so one of the things that's kind of nice about writing books on new things is that you are in the same position as the learner um, as you're trying to make sense of it and rationalize the whole thing. And I think often you can do a better job of writing it at that stage than if you went back to write it later. Yeah, I have a problem with that because I always make a lot of dumb mistakes. Ah, and then okay. I go back and I'm <laughs> like, I'm, I'm working on something on graph, SQL graph and mm -hmm. SQL server. And so I'm trying to build at least two or three kind of real solutions. One where I can search for things in a higher hierarchy, you know, give me all the pictures I've taken. I, I take a lot of pictures of Disney World. I have a mm -hmm. Disney pot, um, World um, Twitter. Find a picture. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build a graph where you say, Show me all the pictures from Walt Disney World. Show me all the pictures that are in Adventureland. Show me all the pictures that are in. And I'm going to use graphs to do hierarchy like that or, or you know, what's connected to what. I, I try to build a bunch of example code that is real enough if I worked in that and if I actually did that for work, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I'm going to use this, but I'm never going to, I'm never going to get it quite as good as if it was my primary. Um, yeah primary job. So because actually, I, that's a really good question is, how, is the amount of effort, because I, I tend to do the same thing. I actually build sample things that I, uh, that writing and courses and things I build are based on. And yet I try and make them, you know, pretty realistic and built at a level where, you know, that's almost how I would do it if I was doing it for real sort of thing. Um, because you need you need it to be simple enough and for real sort of thing. Um, because you need you need it to be simple enough to be understandable, um, but but you need it not to be just you know I don't know yet another bike store basically. It needs to be real enough and it needs to be tested enough too. Yeah. And I've, I've I discovered like when I when you build some sort of example code and you, and you get finished with it, you're like oh this is great I can do the one thing that it was designed for hmm. and I can show it to the people. But when I when I kind of built this, um, I started working with file file stream to, to store these pictures. When I started building that, I started finding all the little mistakes I'd made, and then that stuff goes back into the to the next edition of the book yeah. to make the examples better and more real and more approachable. Hmm. And so, so especially us, when I sit. Oh, sorry. I was going to say. So tell us about this particular book. So um, that there's a, a couple of things I think for people who haven't looked at earlier editions of this and so on. Um, uh, one of the things I kind of like is that you tend to have some coverage of patterns and anti-patterns. And so can you give us maybe some examples of things you consider uh, patterns uh, that are good patterns to be following? Yeah. So like I am, um, well, the whole book starts out with all the boring stuff, you know, how to do it, what to do, how to normalize, how to design. Mm -hmm. And like you say, I get to the point where, you know, you should know how to build a database. And then I start thinking about what kind of patterns there are that, that we, we do a lot, you know, things like how to make sure that you're enforcing uniqueness. Mm -hmm. And it seems simple, right? You put a unique constraint on a column, but what does that really mean? And, and how do you design in uniqueness? Cause there's different sorts of, of things. Like uh, if I'm in a grocery store and I'm, I have a bunch of cans of corn, I love, I love the cans of corn. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I don't know why cans of corn is funny to me, but, you know, they have thousands of cans of corn. They can't tell them apart. If you can't tell them apart in the real world, telling them apart in the data. And, and when you're trying to tell two people apart, like you're Greg Lowe, well, mm -hmm. there's probably hundreds of Greg Lowe's in the country. It's the state. Oh, yeah. I, I know several in the country and many around the world, actually. Ironically. But when you yeah. call into, well, when I call into a company and say, hi, I'm Lewis Davidson. I'd like to order a product. They can't make that unique, right? So they have to figure yeah. out, am I unique? 
and how do you do that? But you can't actually store it in the database with um with a unique this unique constraint. <laughs> I'll, I'll share a story. I, I love actually, Lewis. The uh, uh, in uh, a university I worked at in uh, the nineteen nineties, uh, there was a long term electrical engineering guy. Uh, named Paul, I, I won't say his last name to, to embarrass him, but uh, he, he'd been there like a very, very long time. Uh, and then a, a couple, then in recent years when I was there, they had a famous criminologist turned up who had the same name, right? And the beautiful thing that the, the people at the switchboard used to do at reception is that someone from a television station would ring up and they would they would ask for this Paul whatever, they'd always put them through to the electrical engineering guy, <laughs> right? And he would get a call saying, "Hey, this is so and so from Channel Seven. Can we get your opinion on blah 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 blah?" And he'd go, "Sure." <laughs> and, and then he would tell him a whole lot of stuff and his thoughts and everything. And then he would always finish by saying, "But look, you you probably ought to talk to the criminologist guy." <laughs> After they've just spent ages noting down all of his words of wisdom. Yes. That is <laughs> just <fantastic>. wonderful. <laughs> so actually uniqueness is interesting too, though. Like people are probably the number one thing that uniqueness is a major problem. Um, but, but it's one of the things that people don't tend to do well inside databases. And it's a good example is I often use if you had a, a country table, people often have a country code or something or an ID or whatever, and that'll be, uh, that'll be a primary key. And so by default, that'll be unique. But like the name of the country will be unique, but they'll often never, ever put a unique constraint there. Yep. And yet that can have a profound impact on the queries, you know? And so that, that's, that's the sort of thing that always fascinates me with uniqueness is that the, that sort of information is often there and could be available to the optimizer and so on, but people often don't. Unique constraints is, uh, I think, are underutilized. Well, I think the, the, when you say they would have the, the code as the primary key, a lot of times, some people don't use codes as primary keys now, right? Mm. They use some sort of integer. Or an, so yeah. they don't put, a, put a, a unique constraint even on the code and ah, start duplicates. <laughs> yes. And I've, and I think if people th sit there and think, do I want two countries that are the same? No, mm. put a unique constraint on it. Performance comes out if you do a really good job of that, because, you know, that's the kind of thing you're going to be wanting to look for too. If something's unique, you're probably going to want to look for it almost always. Maybe not the row ID of a table and the, the GUID if you're doing, you know, <laughs> certain kinds of replication or something. But mm. most of the time, if you have some bit of data on the, on the table that's unique, it's going to be there for some sort of search search yeah. purposes. But also ad hoc queries, right? The thing I find is if you let someone add a query tool, they won't group by that code or that ID. They'll group by the name. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and this is where it bites you big time. Yeah. Unless those other people have also been at the company for 30 years, then they only know the code. <laughs> that we have that a lot where, I, where I'm at. I fight by any means in the... the only couple of people that have been there a long time. There's yeah, people that have been there 40 years. Um, so apart from uniqueness, any other ones? Uh, well, there's a section on data-driven data design. This is, you know, not hard coding things. Mm -hmm. Getting things out of code and getting it into data. Temporal data, how to deal with historical data. My, what am I Actually, while we're on that, well, let me ask you what your thought is around uh, what's been supplied so far in terms of temporal tables in SQL Server. And do you use those or do you still roll your own design of some type? I use them for system-y kinds of things. Mm -hmm. the, the temporal tables, you, you know, and for the listener, the, um, they only let you have a system time. So they only capture the time of day, yep. day when you actually make the change. So they're fantastic for things like system um, changes, like if you want to change settings in a table, they're okay for for capturing the changes in a, in a row in like a customer data, if you want to keep up with where they were at a certain time. But that's only the time it was in the computer. And most people don't, they, 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 they learn to not, they, they learn to be okay with it. But most people don't really want to know the time, the point of time that the computer thinks a change has been made. They want to know when yeah. it happened. 
Like I call in on the phone and I say, hey, I'd like to order a product. They want to know when that occurred because that time has meaning. Why did that person call at that moment? Most of the time they didn't just sit down and you were just walking around the house going, you know, I need to call and buy a, a, a widget. And you don't look it up. You know the number by heart and you dial it and you call. They've been prompted somehow. And we know if you look at all the, the data of when commercials are put out, when, when things have happened in the world, uh, you know, why people have done something. So it's, it's okay. It's an okay thing for that. Um, yes, I definitely will roll my own for other kinds of changes. It, it's built the kind of the same way, right? You say when the row started, when the row ended, and you have a, have a, another value. And I'll kind of pattern my, my, my personal creations after the way the temporal works. Mm. I also don't like the way you can only, you, you have to do the entire table or, or, or not at all. Yeah. The, Although, the although that, was, that was actually a fairly common pattern in things like slowly changing dimensions where people are just in a yes. data warehouse where they just, yeah, throw another row in when something changed. And, and when I first saw temporal, I was hoping it, it would be the direct drop-in for the slowly changing dimensions. And I remember them, starting to market it that way but then everybody went no 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 hang on a sec and and the time is the big issue i mean it's it's one thing when the date changes uh, or something changes in the the source system but it, it could be quite some time later before it hits a data warehouse and you certainly don't want the time recorded as when it hits the data warehouse right so um and so yeah i think some temporal systems, they, 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 uh, I know they call it sys-temporal, what they've given us. Um, but yes. yeah, app-temporal is the thing that, that most people really want. Uh, or some systems are bi-temporal, they, they give you both. But, but yeah, you, you need the time of when the changed over in the source, not when it just, I happen to get it in the data warehouse. Cool. So, and so temporal, yeah. And so I, as I said, I've had limited success with that. The, the other thing I had done with that when we uh, built the wide world importers sample stuff for uh, 2016, the other thing that I realized is that I had to put the temporal stuff in the source system to capture the time it actually occurred. Um, but then when you have normalized tables where you've got several tables related to each yes. other, that's when the temporal lens started to have more problems again, right? So if I, if I said, look, I've got three tables related to create, I don't know, one dimension or something out the other end, and I want changes, if any one of the three change, I want all of the, what the rows looked like at that time. There's just no clean way of doing that. You have to, when, when you're inside of a transaction, all the changes happen at the exact same time, mm. transactionally. But yeah, it's. But the the problem is that uh, you can do an as at type of thing to query a table at a particular point in time, but if I join changes from one, but there's no clean way of saying, at the time the change occurred in the first table, give me what the value was in the second table. You know, so and so it ended up being like incredibly ugly. Um, so you, it, it either ends up being like a whole bunch of cross applies or, or alternately you do a, a cursor and have to step through all the rows, changes. It, it, it's, it's just a kind of a, we don't really have a proper temporal join. You know, the give me the changes from this table, but let me join to the other table where I'm picking up the data as at the time of each of the changes in the other table. Um, anyway, so yeah, that's, that's the sort of thing I, I found difficult. Yeah. I'm not a hundred percent sure. I know what you mean. Hmm. And you can cut, well, you can cut so this out I'm, later if you want to, but yeah, but <laughs> if I had say a customer who's in a city and the city is in a state, if the city changed at a particular point in time, you know, if I have one change, I can go off and find as at what the customers and the, the, the state looked like at the time, but I there's nothing that gives me, you know, for every change that occurred to the city, give me the rows from each of the other associated tables at the same, at, at the time of those changes in the city. Oh, okay. It, it's, I see what you mean. Yeah. It's just like a, anyway, yeah, whatever you do, it, you need a sort of a kind of like a cross apply. You need to be able to apply the time 
of the change from one table to a table you're joining to sort of thing. But anyway, yeah, it's a, uh, in other words, awesome. it's a mess. Temporal <laughs> data. Anytime you're trying to keep up with all the changes in history, even in a data warehouse, it's not exactly simple. Hmm. But if you're trying to do it in an OLTP system with, you know, tons of tables, tons of tables and tons of yeah. things, it's going to get... And of course, that's the other question is, is that really where you want all the, the, the reversions of things? And typically it isn't where I want them. So, yeah, that's great. And so apart from temporal, what else is in your list of... So I already brushed on images. I, mm -hmm. I say, how do you save images in a database, files and documents? I love file tables. I think they're the coolest thing ever um, being able to, you know, instantiate a table as a directory and just m mess with the files directly. That's yeah. That, actually that's for those that haven't touched amazing. that, yeah, they're, they're actually one of my favorite things in, in an on-premises SQL server. Um, and so, and so maybe, yeah, if you could just spend a minute, just spell out what that does a file table, because it's, I find surprisingly few people know about them. So you can create a table, which is um, basically a directory. Mm -hmm. And inside of that, that you can create directories as well in text. And there's, it uses a hierarchy ID for a, for the, the graph, you know, for the um, subfolders and subfolders of that. Mm. And you can put a file in there and you can just write just like any file stream data, you can write to it, or you can go in and, and edit it in a non, in a, is, is it non-transaction? I can't remember the exact word, but you know, you can you can actually save it in Word and save it, and it'll save it to the database, and it can, it's backed up with the database. And what's kind of interesting about it is I'm actually using a um, Express Edition SQL Server. Mm. You know, when you have a fairly small limit on the number of amount of data you can have, yeah, um, but you can have uh, quite a few files in your in there is in the uh, in, file in your, tables. Um, so you, you, it's a pretty decent hobbyist kind of kind of tool. Yeah, look, and I, you can the, do production stuff with stuff with Express. Mm. So it's kind of a. Actually, I use it, it to it's, store. It's funny you mention that with Express because it's one of the things I've fought with the marketing people at Microsoft with over so many years. They they always with Express because it wasn't a paid edition. They used to tend to use the words para professional or hobbyist or words like that and and i thought that completely undersold it it um express is being used in many 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 production environments and like i mean if i want a a simple database i don't know to stick in a some sort of point of sale device or something like that things like express it can be completely appropriate yes and that's and not it's some actually... hobbyist thing i mean it's just it's just a real scenario no, no, and I, and that was definitely not my point. Was hmm. it was that you can also use it for hobbyist things and and that are real and production production sort of worthy and because you can have production stuff. I, I have production stuff that I consider production, even though it's just really a database of my pictures of of of, of Disney theme parks hmm. that I want to search over. And what's kind of nice about it is you can you can not only have the file, but you. Every file gets an ID, and you can build tables of data that that um, reference that. So you can have yep. you can add your extra properties. You can use that file ID and save it to a customer customer's file. You can make directories for customers. You can do all sorts of things mm. in these file tables, just like in Windows, and also use it through Windows and share it out as a file share that's built into SQL Server. Yeah, I, I love it. Yeah, because. Basically, as you say, it's, it's like it's a Windows share, basically, um, that you can read and write in Windows, but you can also sort of read and write the same stuff in the database. And I, I, I think it made file stream much more usable um, for an, an awful lot of applications. Um, the other one that we tend to do with it as well is, of course, I love full text indexing. And you can also build full text indexes over the contents of files that yeah. are then sitting in the operating system. And that, that's... Hi, this is Greg. Just wanted to thank you for listening to this show and let you know that if you'd like to let me teach you more about SQL Server, we now have both free courses and low-cost courses available online and on demand. The courses include detailed hands-on lab work for you to complete to reinforce your learning. And there are more courses coming 
in the next few months. You'll find details at training.sqldownunder.com. One of the tricks for us is almost everything we build now is in Azure SQL database. And so that's where I then run into a problem is that things like that aren't there, right? Um, and so that's, it's one of the things that sort of kills a number of features for me is if I know I can't use them in that environment. And that's, the, that's my go-to target environment now for nearly everything. And so that'll be very different, I'm sure, to your scenario where I presume most of it is still on-premises stuff. Uh, mostly. We're talking about moving to um, things more, moving more to the cloud. But I, mm. I would say we would probably be more likely to use um, either the VM version or the managed instance. Yep. Because of these things. Yeah, exactly. It, it's it's because of a tie to the features that don't have an equivalent. And uh, in fact, the big one that came up yesterday, um, we're discussing uh, the fact she was just getting into uh, Service Broker a bit at the moment. And that's another that's one that, true. again, I, I just love to death um, on premises. Um, but when I get into Azure SQL Database, it's, it's another one I totally miss. Um, you know, the, the, to me, there is a total need for a transacted transactional queue that lives in the database, and that, that's what it was providing. And, uh, uh, and otherwise, you see people doing all sorts of bizarre stuff in terms of rolling their own. Yeah, yeah I, I never got into service broker. The whole mm. networking, I'm really terrible at networking. Um, and that's sort of all the kind of protocols and things you have to do to get that kind of stuff set up. So I never really messed with it. Hmm. <clears throat> now, overall, it's, it's actually really straightforward. And ironically, we've got online training and it's still one of the more popular courses is actually stuff on Service Broker. Um, and because I think the problem is that in 2005, they did fabulous plumbing and they improved it in 2008, a little bit again in 2008 R2 and again in SQL Server 2012. But they kind of hid it by not providing tooling or basically not providing tooling and and really a lack of prescriptive guidance. And so I think then they were sort of surprised it was slow taking off. And you think, well, really? <laughs> you know, like, I mean, make it not obvious and don't tell people how to use it. it it's not surprising. It takes a while to take off. But the, the core work that the teams did back with Roger Walter and those guys back in those days, they did fabulous work under the covers. Oh, yeah. I mean, quite amazing. I like what it does. I just, like I said, never, hmm. I, I, I try to stay in the relational engine and I try to treat the relational engine with the respect an architect should have. And that is the relational engine should do my work for me. Hmm. I should be able to ask it and they should be able to go back and figure out how it works and then present me with good, with good answers. You know, and that's kind of what the, the first half of the book is on hmm. is if you design your databases right and you prepare it correctly, you know, it works really well with the, with the engine that was created and, you know, designed like 30, 40 years ago, right? Actually, there's the thing. When you say designing it right, you also have anti-patterns. Have you got an example of any of the anti-patterns? <laughs> These are my favorite things because <laughs> they happen more than they should, right? Yep. Let me flip over to that page. Um so like the worst, the worst is like having one domain table for every single domain you have in a database. Mm -hmm. You know, so you have customer status and customer this and customer that, and they're all in one table. Ah, so then this the, is the, the table to rule them all. So yes. a, a code table, yeah, that has the codes for all the different codes, yes. That's the one that hurts the most. And when you, um, when you see people do that, what's their justification, do you know? Because when I see well, it, way they, they talk um, about reducing the number of tables. You go, I was just getting ready to say that. Yeah. <laughs> but then you go, well, you know, so, you know, like what's a lot of tables? Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, again, you'd think you'd go for clarity over a number of tables every time, right? So, You know, that is probably the most simply intelligent thing anybody says, right? Clarity over, yeah. I, I mean, clarity. That's really where it's at. Every time I sit down to a system, and you look at it, if you can figure out what it's doing without any documentation, 
you're really very close to happiness. Hmm. If you have a column that says status ID and there's a status table, happiness. Hmm. if you have a column that says status ID and there's a status table that you can go look at it, you know, it's simple. If you have to go to some table that says generic domain and then you look in there and you don't know what a status is unless you look and you find the table and you find the thing and you join and you have to do a bunch of where clauses or maybe you build some views and, you know, then we have a view over a table to do a join the table. And, you know, it's just every step that's more complicated, you're yeah. probably not saving that much. Oh, it's like the yeah, old argument yeah, over <laughs> should you sell in an, it exists. Should you select star or select one? Yeah. The answer, <laughs> it doesn't make a bit mm. of difference. Um, yeah, no, so good. that's so that's that's a definite anti-pattern. Yeah, I, I've run across that one. In fact, the system I was working on yesterday has exactly that issue. And so, any other? Um, yeah, I have to really just terrible. I haven't already had not already mentioned. Um, a generic key references, kind of where you have a table that has you know ID in it, and in that it may have a customer ID or a store ID or a pet ID ah, or anything yes. like that. And the user has to then decode it. It, gets, it goes back to, <laughs> you know, more ways to be tricky and save a table here or a table there. Yeah. And that one just, to me is kind of interesting because it, it starts to lead towards what graphs do. And graph databases actually kind of do that, right? They're, when, when you start looking into mm. SQL Server's graph implementation, you have a node and you have an edge and the edge is basically a generic container of, of references. So it's not like it's completely terrible to do that if the system's ready for it and it's built for mm. it, but tables aren't built for that. You don't join to a table no, no, and then no, have no, to no. That's right. filter it out. I, I come across that again all the time. You're dead right. You know, where there'll be say a transaction table and they'll have some sort of ID column and you say, what's this ID? And they say, well, it could be a customer ID if it's a customer, but but if it's a supplier, then it's a supplier ID <laughs> and, and so on and so on. And just go, why, why can't you just have separate columns for that, you know, and just join to the right ones, you know? And they're like, ah. Oh. And, and they can never really explain that. They hadn't really thought it through. It's just, they've just gone, you know, th this is some generic sort of ID. And, and the, the problem is, again, that's such a mess for the optimizer trying to work on that sort of thing it's so terrible um but but even just from the yeah from the basic design of the database that's that's a fundamental design problem that sort of thing i think but, my favorite but yes part i see of, it again and again <laughs> you know, so. i i think my favorite part about being in the community and talking to people such as yourself or you know at, at user group meetings and things is is that not only do you not do you learn the right way to do things but i find that things I, I, I write down just thinking, eh, nobody could do this, but let's make sure that, that nobody can be this ridiculous. Because mm. when you have a problem, when you do something wrong, most of the time you do something kind of wrong. It's, it's where normalization comes in. Mm. Things, like, things like normalization, it's very obvious why you shouldn't do it. And it's very obvious not to do it really, really all the way bad. A completely a, a denormalized database would have only one table in it when it needed a hundred, right? So yeah. nobody does that, but it's these, these little edges of, of wrong is where it comes in. And you think, ah, eh, nobody does it that bad. And then somebody will go, yeah, I saw somebody with a table that had like 5,000 tables joined <laughs> to the same table on the same column. And they, and they had no indication of what the value was. They just had to join in there and see, because they use GUIDs and they were sure that that would be fine. Mm. You're like, Seriously? Oh, and look, and of course, because of that too, they'll, yeah, left out a join to everything else. Because it'll be, yeah, it might match something. <laughs> so, okay. I was just thinking this would be this would be an example of the absolute worst thing someone could do. You're mm -hmm. like, you think that's bad? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Now, look, it's one of the things I do like about doing consulting work. Um, I, I don't love coming in when things are a mess, you know. But I'm, I'm very pragmatic about it and very used to it. But the thing is, I look at these things that people do, and yeah. I couldn't make this stuff up. Yeah, you know, like you, know, you do sessions where you say, I saw a blah, blah, and there's no way you could dream this stuff up. You know, there's just things that you see and just shake your head and go, really? You know, like somebody thought that was a good idea. Yeah. But in, in the case write, of the call, what would another two, you know, 
Oh my goodness. Yeah. And then you have to, when you're doing a lot of writing, you have to do a lot of an anonymization. Oh yes. <laughs> which is a lot harder when you've worked for the same company for a long time. You oh, look, but sure. even there where I have, I have lots of different customer <laughs> things. I, I spend an enormous amount of time de-identifying who it is. <laughs> uh, the last, the last anti-pattern I cover in this is, is overusing unstructured data, mm-hmm. which is, you know, basically having a notes column to say, go, go, go free and do what you want to do. Because as a data architect or, you know, it's easy. I put a column in there, people can use it. But as a programmer, you're like, why is there like 17 things in this one column? Yeah. Oh, if you want to know if this is a, a sales order for a bunny food, you need to go to the notes column and see if anybody wrote mm-hmm. bunny biscuits in there. Or you're like, what? Seriously? Yes, we do this. Did someone not even think about this? And a lot of it, times it's, it's, it's the whole customer hmm. is never wrong, right? Because customers are always wrong, but they, they have a job to do. And I respect that. That's the one thing I've always tried to be clear about is that, you know, if you give a customer a notes column and you don't give a customer a place to put in the, the data that they want, they're going to use the notes column. Yeah, of course. If you don't give them a notes column, they'll use the last name column and mm-hmm. they'll put the full name in the first name column, right? They'll find a way. Hmm. And I respect that because that's, you know, that's what programmers do, right? We, yep. To a certain point, you just find a way. Hmm. But if you poorly, if you, if you don't, if you don't think about what they need and you don't talk to them about what they need, or you're, you know, charging them to death and they just have to get hmm. rid of you as fast as they can, which I, I, I respect and I, and I'm, which I, I, I respect and I, and I'm not saying that in a, well, I'm saying that negatively, but I'm saying that in a really negative way because, I know how customers are, right? They don't tell you anything and they make you drag it out. And, you know, there's, it's the whole consulting thing is, is so complicated. I don't quite understand how people, how people make that work to come in and design something for a company and tell them how much it's going to be. And and I I think that's, uh, that's, that's an interesting challenge actually. Yeah. For, for those who have a slight interest in that, um, there's an interesting podcast called Ditching Hourly, um, and uh, worth a listen. Um, it, the, the guy mostly does websites and things like that, but he's very much tried to move himself out of the over the years out of uh, trying to estimate numbers of hours and and do things. And he's very much more into getting an agreed amount that makes him happy and just doing the project. And, uh, and of course, trying to move towards customers who work that way. That's and really uh, it's, it's been a really interesting, it's a really interesting thing. Yeah. So ditching hourly is the one uh, for those that want to listen to that. And I have to admit, we have both types of projects. We have somewhere it's just daily things that or I try and avoid anything hourly now, but, uh, but daily things, but we have a lot of other projects where we just, we know what needs to be done. You know, we pick an amount and, you know, there's a fair bit of give and take in that. And we just pick an appropriate amount. And I can tell you that they are by far the more uh, pleasant projects to do. Because in the end, you know, you're going to deliver something that'll make them happy. And, and you know that the overall cost is going to be something that you, you're both happy with, you know? And so, yeah, no, I, I prefer that sort of work if we can do it. Um, Sorry. Anyway, hmm. Sorry. I was going to say, I'm trying to get overly judgy about you know, you see a bad design. There's a reason that it got that way. Hmm. And sometimes it's the customer. Sometimes it's an architect. Sometimes it's, it's a lot of things, right? But the, the more you get right to start with, the less you have to fix. Hmm. What about new features? So um, you obviously with a new version there's of the book or new uh, revision of the book, there's going to be new features described in there. So graph is obviously the first one you mentioned. Yeah, graph is the biggest thing that I made uh, added to the book mm-hmm. that's new. I mean, there's the good thing about being a relational programmer is that, you know, they came up with this stuff 30 years ago. And a lot of what we need to do is the same. The fundamentals yep. of it haven't changed whatsoever. Um, new patterns arise and new kinds of things have been added over the years. The most recent uh, has been graph database. And for this for this edition, I think the previous edition it was um, in memory OLTP, 
was kind of maturing and kind of seemed to be in a holding pattern right now. We'll see what, what they do in the next edition. Yep. Increase that great feature, but you know, um, so is, is graph data and kind of storing highly connected data in SQL server. I, it doesn't seem to be like the kind of thing that's going to replace a graph database. Exactly. No. Um, <laughs> the SQL people think that the people who wrote the product do, but yeah, no, um, it, it's, it's just not true. It's uh yeah, if you look at the other ones, yeah, obviously things like Neo4j and you know, th- those sorts of products and things, it, it, it is very different uh, what you can do in, in some of those other tools. But, but it is a good start, uh, what's there inside the database. I, I, what I judge it on, though, is more is this I could not do before. And have you got thoughts on that? Yeah, and absolutely. That's, that's kind of why I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm starting a book on on graph database in the next couple of months. Mm. Um, and what's nice about it is because it relies, resides along with my, um, my regular relational database and it's in relational tables, more or less, um, that they, they're relational tables that have some extra kind of metadata built into, there's another um, set of data that's stored about the graph tables. But because it's right in the same database, I can add kind of relationship kind of things much easier than I could using tables. When when Mm. I talked about having the um, generic key references, this kind of gives us that power to say, you know, Bob knows Jane and Jane knows Jim and Jim likes chicken and, you know, chicken is good for you. And you can have Mm. kind of this graph of data at, at, in, in all sorts of types of uh, applications. And you can use that data to query. And, and where SQL didn't have a syntax that worked really easily for the generic key references, hmm. they've added this syntax, this match, yeah, the um, match expression syntax. that lets you then go and traverse a graph rather easily. You know, one of the things we've always built in SQL Server has been um, hierarchies, you know, hmm. a city, state, country, world, and then local localities or, you know, family trees and things like that. You can build those kind of things in the graph very easy. I haven't done the, I haven't quite done the, the, the work yet to, to, you know, race them and see which one's faster mm. and build it using an adjacency list, using a table mm. that has a parent ID and a child ID. Yep. The last I tried them, they were faster than that. And they're, and they're quite a bit easier to do just a simple hierarchy and a com- more complex hierarchy. So it's, it's another step in the right direction. What I, the hardest part about SQL Server in the last you know, 15, 20 years has been, it has to be used. If no one uses the feature, they know that no one uses the feature and it doesn't, it doesn't progress as fast. Mm. If we start using it, then um, it progresses faster. They know they want to mm. add more features to it. Yeah, it's really I, an interesting I, I think thing to me. I think it's still really, really low in terms of usage is my gut feeling. Um, some of the, I suppose a, a couple of things that I I look at that I sort of wonder about in uh, even though the match, a uh, couple of things about the match syntax. The, the first thing, I, I don't love the fact that it feels like old join syntax when you go from... Yes table, comma, table, but it's like, uh, that just grates on me as soon as I see that. Um, but the but when I have a match clause, for example, in other graph databases, I can include the filtering inside the match clause, right? So I could say where um, Jason lot a match hotel, but in the match, I could have four stars, you know, or something like that, right? Uh, as part of the match clause itself. Yes. Uh, and I don't get that sort of syntax uh, uh, at present in the in the graph offering. Um, and I think the other big one for me is it's still, it, it's the kind of polymorphism thing we were sort of talking about before, really, where Jason likes hotels and restaurants and bars and something or other, and then I can't give me everything Jason likes. And it's because I'm returning in SQL different types of things um, and SQL's pretty funky about all those things being the same type of thing. That you can do sense. some of that using a view, 
Yeah. And, and view, putting a view together of all the things you're trying to query of, mm. but it is not super, um, it's not super, what's the word I'm, I want to say free, but yeah, flexible is the word I'm looking for. It's not super flexible. It's not what you want out of a graph database yet, mm. but it is, it's, I would say, how do we, how do I say this? It's way more flexible than a relational table. It's yep. not as flexible as you want it to be to do a full blown only graph system. Mm. But, I, but I, I sometimes see people using graph databases. The things I've like, they don't seem to be really using that, those features to death either mm. in some of the things they're trying to build with it. So I don't really know. I don't, I don't know that much about all the people that are trying to use it. Mm. In other ways they are using it, but I can see that I, I can see I, I read a book or two on, on, graph databases a while back and yeah there's a lot more you can do in other syntaxes than mm. you can do it, it's just interesting when you look at servers. say cosmos db um that they've already implemented a whole lot more stuff right um and in fact they've got like support for you know direct support pretty much for a gremlin slash tinker pop slash you know these layers over the top of that stuff um and look i'm i'm sure that will probably come in SQL Server. I just sort of wonder if part of the problem we're dealing with is you're trying to uh, force fit it into T-SQL and T-SQL itself has constraints over how we do things, you know, like, uh, you know, parameters of different types, but we can't build a function like that. Yes. You know, so so it, it's that sort of thing or... You know, I can't, I look at a useful function, say something like concat or something like that, but there's no way I could actually build that function in the language. Yeah, I And because I, agree. I can't have an unknown length list of things of indeterminate types. <laughs> yeah, so so it, it's those sort of things. And it's one of the things that strikes me because, of course, with the tools that we build, uh, the free tools we push out in the community. There's a whole lot of stuff I wish I could do um, just even to have a good way to build a, a built-in library. There's no good way to do that um, that's accept accessible from any database on the server, for example, kind of like the master one. Um, there's no way to build these sort of libraries. Or, But the bigger thing is that you can't replicate how many of the things are done in the built-in library. So, so you're totally dependent upon the built-in libraries evolving because you can't do it yourself. Yeah, I don't quite know how they do some of the things. Like one of the things I was, I have an example where I'm doing something in an on-disk database. Hmm. It was a it's concurrency um, application or t test. And one of the things I do is I pad the table out to four. I added four thousand characters to each row. Yep. Because I wanted not to fit. I don't want all the data yeah, on one page. One, one on one page. Yep. But there was no replicate function on in memory tables. Hmm. So I built my own and their functions, and it works just great. I don't know why they don't have some things like that. You know, polymorphism and over, mm -hmm. overloaded parameters. Yeah, I understand why T-SQL doesn't have that. Right. Yeah, mm. but, but and I don't that's understand. A, that's why. an argument why it's actually you. You wonder if longer term is is that a real constraint on the language? Um, the, you know, I think it, it's a, they always talk about how complete a language is, and usually one of the tests is if you could build language elements in the language itself, right? I mean, that that's a, uh, <laughs> and so the the fact you can't do that is is a bit of a thing however one thing i will throw in there is that one thing i love about being on azure sql db is that you keep getting the latest version of the language all the time and yes. this is a wonderful wonderful thing and uh, for those that may not have noticed there's another thing sn snuck in about november december um where they added greatest and least um, in as T-SQL functions. And i got to tell you, it's one of those little things that just made me smile because I have so wanted something that could do that. And again, there was no simple way of doing that in the past. And so now I can say, you know, greatest and give a list of six columns and it'll give me the biggest value, you know, like really so cool. Uh, and I can say least. So it's like a min or a max, but across columns rather than across rows. Right. And we've just had no good way of doing that. Um, 
And so if I wanted to do a min, you know, across a whole bunch of columns, I either had to have a whole lot of nested if statements or I had to, I've seen a, where people cross applied to a values clause, <laughs> you know, just so they could then perform min on the return values from the values clause. And I was like, oh my goodness, you know, um, that, you know, these sorts of things have been wickedly complicated and it's just for the lack of a simple function. Yeah, I've done the cross apply part. <laughs> I've done yeah. that one. That <laughs> yeah, there you go. Not greatest and least, you know. It's kind of cool when things just suddenly appear. And they haven't even talked about it yet. So uh, I've noticed, but uh, but it's certainly there in the language. So I had not heard about that myself. Hmm. And so, yeah, I must admit, it is something I love now about Azure SQL DB is you, you know that all the language elements and everything are just going to appear there first. And uh, that, that's actually a really nice thing rather than, you know, I've spent so many years of my life, you know, you know, working on customer sites where I'm still having to build something in 2012 syntax or something, you know, it, it's so oh, frustrating. Yeah. And you know, <laughs> there's so much cleaner way of doing something, but you just can't do it yet. Yep. Yeah, that um, that's one thing I'm really looking forward to about moving more of our systems to the cloud is is keeping it evergreen and not having to yeah. um, not having to upgrade. We're getting ready to upgrade some servers from 2017 and 2016 mm. um, to 2019 first from 2017 and 2016 mm. um, to 2019, and you know you've got to, they don't want to upgrade the server. They want to drop it and rebuild it, and that seems to be the the thing that even you know all the prescriptive all the prescriptive hmm. knowledge says don't you don't don't, yeah, don't do a don't single play server with upgrade it while directly. It's working, build another one. Yep. Yeah. And you know that's a real pain. It's a it's a we have like twenty or thirty SSIS packages uh, projects mm-hmm. that have to be rebuilt and upgraded to the latest version. You know whatever's I don't know what I haven't even looked at what what that entails. If there's any big diff, any big changes, there hasn't been quite a while. No, no, right. only in the um, tooling actually. Ironically, the the tooling. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. But uh, yeah, again, see that's a good example where. Um, all our days now are spent doing uh, Azure Data Factory instead. Yeah, that's a, on my list, I think. So I'm looking mm. at down what we're going to be doing in the upcoming future. Yeah. And I think it's mostly because most of the database I'm working with at the moment tend to be BI and analytics ones. And people want to get stuff somewhere near Power BI anyway. And even the, even the ones that are doing on-premises stuff, we tend to... Uh, you know, build it out with analysis services on premises and push it up through the gateway to Power BI. But an increasing number of them we use, uh, we just use Azure analysis services instead. And in many cases, then we're doing something that gets the data into the cloud as quick as we can, you know. And uh, and so many things that we would have done previously with SSIS uh, were more about moving the stuff around between the systems. And so what we'll often do now, ironically, is we're doing a lot more replication than we used to. Um, because I can take an on-premise a SQL Server and I can replicate it to an Azure SQL DB and then everything else happens in the cloud from that point on. Uh, and uh, that's actually proved to be a really, really good outcome for us. Neat. We're actually looking at a project to how to interface between the two, between the cloud and the uh, not cloud. So that's cloud mm. on-prem. Cloud yeah, the, the cloud. fact that transactional <laughs> rep rep uh, replication works between an on-premises DB and an Azure SQL DB is just gold. Mm. And it, it's another one that's actually brought replication more back to life <laughs> you know, um, and more and more. So yeah, it's, it's been an interesting shift. Uh, now it changed me interviewing you. Tell me more about this. <laughs> <laughs> yes. How would I? Uh... <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, that's good. Hey, listen, we are getting towards time though, Liz. So um Look, uh, what else is coming? So obviously a graph book by the sound of things. Is there anywhere else people uh, see you or well, I suppose not so much see, but uh, or well, maybe see online? Mm-hmm. I, haven't, I haven't been putting out. I, we haven't talked about it, but the, you know, the whole past thing was kind of, <laughs> kind of yeah, a smack in the head. I, I, it is. I've sort of you know, just been sort of reeling from that since the start mm. of the year. We have a, co- a couple of conferences, at least one conference, maybe this year, um, Music City Tech. Uh, we're talking about doing something online there. Hmm. Um, if you really want to see me online, I'm online more as um, on Twitter as at Disney Pick a Day, where I, I post Disney <laughs> yeah. pictures every day. And we, 
argue about something that really doesn't matter at all. Um, Look, it's great to have that. It's like uh, I've got a friend who's a tax lawyer, you know, and he's so into all the tax law stuff, but, but, you know, he, he posts like plushies stuff all the time <laughs> and he's got this massive following in this plushie. And I go, okay. <laughs> you know, so kind of cool. You know, whatever, whatever you're into, that's fine with me. <laughs> it's fine too, because I use, I use SQL server to try to help out and help. Yep organize my tweets and organize my things and, and try out new features in SQL Server. I'm building a graph of, of like I said, the, um, the, the geography of, of mm. the Magic Kingdom and things. So I can do queries on that to say, give me all the pictures in a certain area and try it out and, and feel the pain of things like that. Mm-hmm. Because like you say, they'll send me all of the, the nodes of a certain type and the nodes of a certain type that I like more than others, you know, those kind of things. Mm. I'll, I'll struggle with how to do and figure out, you know, so I can write about it. Mm. And because the more, one of the things about writing that's really important is you can, and presenting too, if you're thinking about presenting, I know you're not thinking about presenting. I mean, some people are listening Mm. is you have to go outside of, of what you do back up the database. I know that doesn't exist very much anymore, Mm. but you also, if you want to talk about that, you need to not just think about how you do it. You have to think about how other people should do it yeah. and how, you know, if things don't work for a certain reason and if you're using different hardware and that's, that's what's always drawn me to, you know, presenting and, and writing has mm. been the thought of how do I do other things that I don't do and I don't get stuck in the same, in a rut. Like, like I said, I've, I've been in the same company 23 years. I've done some of the same things a lot. I mean, I've been a data architect for mm. 12 years now and we have you know lots of different problems that we solve and lots of different things but i also at home at night i'm I'm playing on sql server trying to trying to come up with ways i can use the tools and how how to get better at them in case a A, if i need another job and b i can help someone else get better at their job Hmm. and it's fun hey listen so thank you so very much lewis um i I have to say I miss getting a chance to spend time with you and see you, but uh, that should happen again one day, I'm hoping. But uh, but thank you. For-